you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. This past week, one of our campus missionaries was out on campus at UT Austin, was talking with students there, talking to them about what we do there on campus through Every Nation Campus, and inviting them to, to our, our Bible study and our, our events there, and uh, was in, inviting them and talking to students, and one of them met uh, a young woman who, when she was invited to come, she declined. She says, no, I don't want to come. I don't want to go to your Bible study because I don't like Christians. And so our campus missionary said, okay, fine, you know, would you mind telling me why? Sort of, you know, pick whatever you want. You have a list, I suppose. But uh, she said, all right, I'll tell you. I don't want to come because I I don't like Christians, because Christians don't care for the environment. Yeah, that's what she said. And now she may not have known this, and she probably didn't know this, and you likely don't know it, but she was actually channeling a voice that's rung loud and clear in our culture for about the last 50 years, and that's someone by the name of Dr. Lynn White. Lynn White was a Princeton professor of history, and he wrote a very famous essay about 50 years ago called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. The historical roots of our ecological crisis. And he laid the blame for the state of the environment squarely at the feet of Christian people in the Christian church. And he said, the very idea that you see there in Genesis, that humans are unique, that we have the image of God, that we've been commanded to rule over nature. He said, that very idea is destroying the world. And he concluded like this, to save the planet, we have to get rid of Christianity. And now that view has not only taken root, but it's grown and it's flourished to the point where now 50 years later, an 18, 19-year-old college student here in Austin is repeating it and cites it as a reason for rejecting Christ. Now we should also acknowledge the human heart is always looking for a reason to reject uh, the person uh, of Jesus. And that's a different sermon, which you may or may not get in the future. You've gotten it in the past, probably will get it in the future. But my question today is this, is Lynn White right? Is that college student right, correct? Is the Christian faith incompatible with environmental concern? And my answer today is no, and as a matter of fact, I want to try to make the case that Christians actually have better reasons and resources uh, in their theology to care for the environment, better reasons than anyone else, and that of all people, we can have the most robust and integrity-filled reasons for doing what God does, which Psalm 145 says is this, he loves all that he makes. So let me give you seven, seven reasons today, seven reasons why Christians can be leaders when it comes to caring for the earth. And I'm going to go quickly through the first six, build a case, and then I'll spend the most time on the last one. So I tell you that to say, don't get too excited when I'm moving real fast to the first six, and don't think you're going to get out of here early today, because it's not going to happen. All right. Here we go. Seven reasons why Christians can be leaders when it comes to creation care. Number one, it's because creation is good and it's meant to be kept that way. It's good and meant to be kept that way. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see, we see God, of course. He, he's creating uh, the, the, the cosmos. He creates the earth. He creates people. He says they're good. People are very good. And then here in chapter 2, here he says is the kind of relationship that he intends for people to have 
with creation. Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to eradicate it and destroy it. Oh, wait. To cultivate it and to keep it. A man by the name of Dr. Stuart Pym, he's a professor of conservation ecology at Duke University. Stuart Pym is an activist, especially on behalf of endangered species, and he's also a brilliant and committed Christian person. And not too long ago, he was interviewed by the New York Times about his activism and his you know, fighting for endangered species, and he was asked, have you had any successes lately? And he said, yes, and Stuart Pym gives two examples, gave two examples. First, the first example, he said on the golden coast of Brazil, he had been working to save this little fella right here. This is the golden lion tamarind. Yes, first service had a similar reaction. Golden lion tamarind is a primate about the size of a house cat with a super long tail. Uh, and he said recently, with the help of local conservationist groups, he said that we had purchased 270 acres of cattle pasture that separated two separate pastures of their habitat. The former pasture is now being retreed. The two areas will soon be bridged. And I love this. He said, soon it will be possible for lonely heart lion tamarinds to meet members of the opposite sex and to go forth and to multiply. In another South American nation, he said, case study number two, there was a lot of illegal logging that had been done. Why? Because a local godfather person was getting a kickback from loggers who were illegally deforesting there. He said, my friends and I went to that godfather and we promised to give him a bit more money than the loggers were giving him if he promised to stop the illegal logging. Now, he said, I may burn in hell for purchasing protection for bribery, but it helped the animals and the local indigenous peoples who were not subjected to a whole bunch more bad stuff. He said, in terms of what we got for the money, it was a very good deal. At the end of the interview, then, uh, the surprising question came, and the, the question the interviewer from the New York Times asked him was this, are you religious? Dr. Pym said, oh yes, I'm a believing Christian. And right there in print, he quoted John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And here's his quote. That's an injunction from the gospel of St. John. To me, this means that Christians have an obligation to look after the world. We've been given a stewardship, and we cannot pointlessly drive species to extinction and destroy the forests and oceans. That would be unfaithful to God. When we do that, we destroy the creation God gave us. So what does this mean? It means two things. First of all, it means that people like Lynn White and that college student at UT are actually wrong. Scientists, PhDs like Stuart Pym actually point to their Christian faith, to the scriptures, to their theology as the very reason they are getting involved with caring for creation. And number two, it means that Dr. Pym has read and internalized Genesis 2.15. We are commanded to cultivate the earth and keep it because it is good. But you're saying, Morgan, doesn't Genesis 1 say that humans are supposed to rule over the earth? Yes, you're right, since you're asking that question of me right now. That's exactly right. That's the Hebrew word rada. The word rada is the word for rule, which is the same word guess what, used to describe how God rules over things, over people, over us. God radas over us. So how does God rada us? 
How does God rule? Does he rule like a cosmic tyrant? Does he consume us to extinction? No, no, no. Psalm 145 tells us how God radas, how God rules. In a psalm, Psalm 145, celebrates how God rules, is addressed to God the King. And how does God the King rada rule? This is what it says. It concludes like this. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Let me ask you, should we rule any different than how our heavenly father does? The answer is no, because creation is good. and We are supposed to keep it that way. Number two, number two, here's why we can be leaders in this area. It's because also creation and people are interconnected. Creation and people interconnected. You're saying, I know this, and yeah, you probably do. You know it in your head. But the Bible tries to get this point across to you, again, from the beginning. Hebrew word for man in Genesis is the word Adam. The word for man is Adam. But the word used for ground, for soil, for earth is this word, Adama. It's telling you, not really trying to hide it, that you and I are formed from the stuff of the earth. And though we are unique from every living thing, we bear the image of God, we are still connected to every living thing. Polyface Farms in Virginia, maybe you've heard of them, is a famous farm. Polyface Farms has been featured in the news. It's run by a man named Joel Salatin, who is a committed Christian whose understanding of this idea that humans and, and creation are interconnected, this idea has transformed his farm and the way he does it. He's committed to resisting the large-scale industrialization complex. There's a mouthful right there. That shapes the way our food is produced, including stuff like massive hormone injections, confinement of animals, farming that erodes, erodes the soil and the groundwater, farming that relies on lots and lots of synthetic pesticides and toxic chemicals. And he is not sentimental about what he is doing. He is definitely not a vegetarian. He knows he is raising animals for food. Yeah. And yet he does so by, quote, learning from and attending to the patterns of symbiotic life. Noting how different species work best with each other and making use of those patterns rather than imposing on creation an industrial or market efficiency model. Here's how Polyface Farms works. Here's how it goes. Cattle eat the grass from the pasture, but only from a limited section each day. The next day they rotate. The portable electric fences are moved. The cattle go to another patch. Then the egg mobile is brought out, and all the laying hens are released onto the patch to do what chickens do best, which is to stomp the manure into the ground as they look for food in it. Yes, we're talking about poop in church today. This is what, again, the chickens do best. In doing so, they stimulate the grass growth, which produces an excellent hay crop. Cows aren't fed corn, but are grass-fed as they were intended to be. They're not stacked up in confinement, standing in their own waste. Therefore, they don't need hormone or antibiotic injections that are common to a lot of our beef supply now. Nor do they produce, therefore, the deadly strains of E. coli now common in our beef supply. The chickens, because they're not shut up in confinement, they don't peck at each other due to stress. They are free to roam. The fields, in turn, do not uh, require synthetic or toxic pesticides. And farmers who visit Polyface Farms are routinely surprised, baffled by the fact that he does not need these. He treats the animals so well, basically like kings. You know, up to a point, of course. Anyway, after the cattle, did somebody get that joke later? Or you say, that's not funny at all. That's okay. Either way, 
It's just true. And so, but after the cattle leave, he lets the pigs go out, roam into the manure, looking for fermented corn. The point is he's trying to live out Proverbs 12, 10, which says that the righteous care for the needs of his animals. And in an agricultural culture in which this was written, this is not talking about feeding the family goldfish. This is talking about the family farm. Now, because Salatin tries to live this out, unlike many places, this is fascinating, where farmers are losing soil, Salatin is creating soil, creating farmland. He's had gullies on his property that were once 14 feet deep that have now been filled in by amazing soil. And here's the best part of it all, chefs and restaurants throughout Virginia and D.C. can't get enough of his meats and eggs for their restaurants. They say his food simply tastes better. And they don't ever have to worry about food poisoning or food recalls. And do you know what Joel Salatin calls all of this? He calls it, quote, forgiveness farming. Forgiveness farming. Here's what he says, quote, industrial food production has no room for kindness or mercy. It's all about maximizing the bottom line. Fields and animals are put to the stresses of confinement and forced feeding. Fields are subjected to a regimen of fertilizer and pesticide, all of which take a huge toll on creation. But in the dance of creation, that is polyface farms, the fields and the animals play off each other's strengths. There's room for failure and acceptance because each member of the dance can be itself. And here's how the New York Times concludes it. They call him the high priest of the pasture, and they put it like this. Joel Salatin admits that his views are way too Christian for most environmentalists, way too liberal for most conservatives. What's he doing? He's channeling good theology. He knows that creation and people interconnected. Morgan, are you saying if someone doesn't do this, that they're bad or evil? No. Morgan, are you saying if I don't eat like this, I'm bad or wrong? No. All I'm saying is that Christian theology gives us a chance to do better, to do better, and in this case, thankfully, also to eat better. Yes, that's a good point. Three, number three, third reason why we can be leaders in creation care, it's because creation suffers with us. Creation suffers with us. Look at this fascinating passage here in the book of Hosea chapter four. Now, You're not really going to hear a lot of sermons preached about Hosea 4, but you're going to get one today, and you're welcome, because it's right here. It talks about the interconnectedness of our choices and the subsequent response and effect on creation. Look at this, uh, Hosea 4.1, God says this, hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live In the land, look how often it talks about the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. What's God saying? He's saying when there's only selfishness driving human behavior, when everyone is only fighting and killing to make a profit, there's no boundaries, he says, to what we produce, how we produce it. Now, the oceans go away, weather patterns change, species go extinct, and God is not saying this is a good or normal thing. He says this is my judgment on a boundaryless culture and boundaryless economy. 
Listen, the very same God who is so concerned with how you express your sexuality in this passage is also in the very same passage very concerned with how you run your business and how our businesses affect the environment. And let me give you one more example of that. Deuteronomy 25.4 says this, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Now you're saying, Morgan, finally, a commandment I will probably never be tempted to break in my lifetime. Not going to have a problem with that one. Well, what's this about? It's about this. Businessmen would put a muzzle over their ox to prevent them from eating the grain because as the ox would labor, the ox would work, it plowed the fields that grew the grain. But if you had lots of oxen and lots of fields, you would probably be tempted to what? Reduce the amount of, of grain that your ox ate. Why? Because the more the ox ate, the more money you would make. And so your animals would suffer while you got richer. God says, don't exploit your animals so you can get more money. Don't muzzle them while they're helping you. Why? Because he knows the human heart is tempted to do this. And when we do this, it's not only people who are exploited. Creation suffers as well. Let me be quicker about the next few. Creation doesn't just suffer with us. This is also amazing. Number four, creation sings with us. It sings with us. Psalm 98 says, let the sea resound, everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. Why? They're singing about the thing we don't like to sing about a lot, but yet creation is singing about the judgment of God. Yeah. There's that. The point is, if creation sings about who God is, why would we not care if its voice is silenced? Why would we not want to maximize praise and worship of the one true God in every way? Number five, we can be leaders in creation care because creation begins and ends the Bible. It begins and ends the Bible. Here's what I mean. If I told you that the very same character appeared at the beginning and the end of, let's say, Harry Potter, The Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, favorite Marvel movie, I don't know, say the best-selling book in human history called the Bible, wouldn't you say that character is in there for a reason, to make a point and is important to understand? Yes, Morgan, I would say that. I would say that as well. So let's not be the kind of Christians or church who only read Genesis 3 through Genesis 20. All of that, of course, is crucial, but the first two chapters and the last two chapters are all about creation. Rivers, trees, plants, animals made by God and restored by God. Listen, only the Christian faith says that God loves matter. God loves biological life so much that he didn't just make it. He became it. He inhabited it. He dignifies it. And we are told he will remake it one day. But why? Why? Why will he remake it? Because of number six. It's because creation also has a covenant with God. This is fascinating. Let's go back to the Genesis again. Genesis 9. When Noah comes out of the ark after the flood, what does God say to him? Then God said to Noah and his sons with him. Chapter 9, verse 9. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. The birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, 
all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. You say, I've never seen that before. It's not because I'm making it up. It's right there, isn't it? And to say we love the God of the Bible means we should also love what the God in the Bible says. God, what's this? God's making a covenant with every living creature? Yes, he repeats that four times in the same passage. What does it mean? It means that God is promising to save creation. That's what covenants are for. That's what God's covenants do. God's covenants are always salvific. Oh, but wait a minute. What's God going to save it from? Has creation sinned? No, it hasn't. Creation did not rebel against its creator. Who did rebel? We rebelled. Humans rebelled. So if God isn't promising to save creation from its sin, whose sin is he promising to save it from? Ours. God is promising to save creation from us because creation has a covenant with God creation's good it's interconnected with us it suffers with us it sings with us it begins and ends our story it has a covenant with god let's put it all together now and therefore now number four because of all those things number seven creation care is part of the mission of god in the world it's a part of the mission of god in the world which means we have to ask this question Well, what does God's mission look like? What does God's salvation look like? If he's come to seek and save all that was lost, Luke 10, Luke 9 and 10, right? Excuse me, 19, 10. What forms does it take? What does God's salvation look like? Follow me. I'm going to try to show you. I'm going to try to weave something together here. What does salvation look like? First, when humanity, back in Genesis, humanity was corrupt at an end in Genesis 6, what did God do? He called out one person named Noah. He said, don't be afraid. Follow me. I will make you a blessing to the whole world. Oh, and he didn't just save Noah and human life, did he? No. What else did God save? We saw animal life. Therefore, God's salvation story is coming through how God partnered with Noah to care for animals. Salvation looks like creation care. Second, flash forward a few chapters in Genesis. Humanity is once again at a dead end at the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, what did God do? Same thing he did with Noah. He called one person, Abraham. He said, follow me. Don't be afraid, and I will make you a blessing to the whole world. How did God do that? Not just by calling him out of the idolatry of his family and culture. Oh, no, but he saved Abraham and Sarah's bodies from decay. He enabled their bodies to function the way they ought to have functioned so they could have a child who would have a child who would have a child who would one day be Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Why? Because God's salvation story didn't just come through Abraham's soul. Oh, it came through his body in the world as well. Because salvation looks like healing. It looks like the restoration of the human body. Number three, flash forward to Exodus. When it looked like Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, were at a dead end in slavery. Are you seeing the pattern yet? What did God do? God spoke to them and he said, don't be afraid. Follow me, and I will make you, Israel, a light to the whole world, a blessing to the whole world. And when God called them out of Egypt, what was he calling them out of? 
A corrupt political system which was oppressing an immigrant people out of an evil economic system built on the back of slavery. A corrupt social system which disallowed human rights by mandating babies be put to death. And what did God do next? He rescued them through the Red Sea out into a desert and he set up just systems. One that limited the government's power. One that honored the dignity of all citizens. One which commanded the people to do mishpat, to care for their fellow citizens and foreigners in their midst. One that had economic controls, which forbade business people from maximizing their profits in the name of a free market. Because the landowners had to leave grain for the poor, and everybody had a day off, praise the Lord, to prove they weren't slaves anymore. And when God brought Israel out, then he gave them moral commandments so they could obey him and worship him because people aren't truly free until they're free to worship the one true God and when God looked back at all of this do you know what he said he said look my people I have saved you I've redeemed you why because salvation's story looks like people being freed from slavery on the outside and salvation looks like people being healed and free from sin on the inside oh human beings don't need just one or the other but both so please 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 let's not reduce the god of the bible to a deity who only cares about structural sin but doesn't care about how you live your personal life Oh, let's not reduce the God of the Bible to someone who only cares about what happens in the bedroom and reduce them now to someone who just does that and never looks twice at the corporate boardroom, right? Oh, no, we, he's not a God who looks away from either. He sees it all. He wants to save it all. Now let's put it all together. Flash forward one more time. Exodus to Luke. After 400 years of silence in the Bible from God, no prophet has spoken in four centuries. It looks like humanity is at a dead end once more what does God do this time he sends himself through Jesus Christ and one more once more Jesus Christ does what he had been doing for centuries Noah Abraham Israel and he says the same thing now to these disciples on a lake shore in Galilee he had said to Noah Abraham Israel did you catch it Luke 5 he said don't be afraid. Follow me. I will make you a blessing to the whole world. I've got a mission for you. And what does God's mission look like? What does salvation look like? Jesus Christ is about to show us right now. Jesus rolls up on Peter. He's on the beach. He's been teaching. No space anymore. He says, Simon, Peter, let me into your boat. I'm going to push out. The people are crowding me. Peter looks at him. He says, okay, all right. And they push out. Jesus says, no, no, no. Go a little further. Throw out your nets for a catch. Verse 5. Here's what Simon Peter said. He answered, master, trying to be real polite like there. He says, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. What did he say? He said, we fished when? All night. Why? Because net fishing which is what Peter was doing. Net fishing in Galilee was done at night. So you pulled the night shift. You worked at night. You fished at night and cleaned your nets during the day. You'll notice Peter says we worked hard when all night. Hint, hint, Jesus, you're a teacher. You're not a fisherman. Stay out of my business, bro. Right back off. But Peter does it. He throws the net over in the middle of the day. What happens? All the fish suddenly stream toward the boat. Hundreds and hundreds. Why? Oh, not because the fishermen are there. 
Not because the boats are there, the net's there, they're getting lucky. No, it's because Jesus is there. And can you see for a moment, like a Rubik's Cube being returned back to its original state, like a giant supernatural magnet being switched on, Jesus Christ is allowing his power and his glory to leak out into the world. And all of creation is coming back to its creator. In this moment, Jesus is standing in a fisherman's boat doing what he came to do. He is dealing with the human heart, right? I mean, Peter's heart. Peter falls to his knees here. What does he say? He said, go away from me, Lord. I am a what? Mistaker. Oh, no. What doesn't say that? I'm trying real hard. No, no. I'm a sinful man. And by the way, you'll notice Jesus does not contradict him. What's happening? Salvation. Jesus is dealing with Peter's sin and Jesus is touching creation because when he heals it, all of creation, humans, fish, oh, it all returns home. Why? Because salvation is not just dealing with stuff out there. It is redeeming the human heart from sin in here, which means you and I, we need to repent of our sin and acknowledge the lordship the kingship, the ownership of Jesus Christ over our lives because he came to save you. And salvation isn't just saving souls. It is repairing the world God has made, which means, church, now, it means we've got a big mission in the world. We have a part to play. And because Jesus came for all of this, we'll flash forward one more time. A few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul, the apostle, writes this, looking back maybe even at Luke 5, and Paul writes this. He said, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile, bring back to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Church, we have a commission in Matthew to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And we have a commission from Jesus in Luke to preach repentance from sin. And we have a commission in John to do, to do justice in the world. And we have a commission in the gospel of Mark to preach the gospel to what? All creation. Every living thing are the words of Jesus. It's not either or. It's all of this because creation's good. We're interconnected with it. It suffers and sings with us. It begins and ends our story. It has a covenant with God. And therefore, it's part of the mission of God in the world. I hope you can say amen to this. Let me just pray for you, and we'll apply this in a couple of ways. Lord, I thank you for this. Lord, I thank you for these truths. Lord, I thank you for your, your word and your scriptures. They've been there for millennia. Lord, asking for us to, uh, to, to participate. Lord, to, to agree with you. And Lord, help us to be increasingly a people, a people who care, Lord, and who partner with you in your mission, in your way, in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, let me, if you'll turn your attention to the screen, I want to just show you a video here that shows you how someone right here, a leader at Mosaic, is taking this call to creation care seriously. For the ground that you are walking on is holy ground. Our call to missions, our call to injustice, starts with the knowledge of knowing that where what we are standing on 
is his creation. It's his holy ground. And we need to treat it that way because there's so much truth to that. I am a certified energy manager. Basically, I'm certified to manage energy. I'm also a missions pastor. I've got my uh, uh, degree at Gordon-Conwell up in, uh, in the Boston area. And I put those two together. And now I work with churches on the energy efficiency front. We do in-depth energy audits for churches. They use that energy savings to fund cross-cultural missions. We do a lot in India and Kenya. We went to a village and it's called Yamitaba. And in the village, uh, there was no grid, there was no electricity, there was no energy, right? It was just in the middle of nowhere, but everybody had their formal tribal gear on, maybe a Dallas Cowboy shirt or something, but everybody had cell phones. And, and you're wondering, I mean, everybody had a cell phone and you begin to ask the question, well, what's going on? Well, they all had solar. And it's cool to see, and that's to me when it opened my mind and you're taking creation and you're connecting it to the injustice and how that can really empower and equip people on a number of different ways. If I'm to encourage people on this path, the first thing that I would do is to really encourage them to look at their heart. You know, there's a lot of theologians that I've, I've talked about and I've heard from, you know, Tim Keller who talks about creation care and, and a lot of others. But one that I remember is a simple prayer of a second grader at the time. Her name was Ellie Brown and she was with, with Nathan and Ashley and they were having dinner and she was praying. And I'm going to, you know, paraphrase it, not to put it exactly, but she was talking about, she said, Dear Lord, we thank you for this earth. We thank you for the things that the builders made and the food that we're eating, Lord. And we thank you for not making this earth ugly and that you've made it beautiful so that we can see your creation and enjoy it. You know, to me, that says so much that she just, from a perspective, from an outward perspective, you're just seeing the beauty that God created, that he did create this, right? This is not man-made, this is from the Father. So the position of our heart, one thing is something that I would recommend, but we're talking about using the environment and to impact what God is doing. And from an energy efficiency point of view, we can, yes, turn down our air conditioning. We can minimize and strengthen our building envelope. We can turn lights off. All of this stuff makes a difference. And you can, for example, see how much you're saving on a monthly basis, capture that, and let's pour it into a like-minded ministry that God is pouring out. Look at creation care. Our brains bring it to a political point of view. That it's all about conservation and, and fracking and moving to renewable energy. And you know, conservation is part of it. But it's so much bigger than that. God has given us creation so that we can create things like solar, like food, so that we can empower the local church and the local church can move forward and it's called to make disciples of every nation. So. Climate change, creation care is not just about being good stewards, right? It's about creating something out of nothing that he's given us that ability to do. So I think when we're talking about creation care, we need to think from a bigger lens. I'm Colby May, and I believe you have a part to play. Yeah, that's Colby May. Colby's one of our, our deacons here at Mosaic. He's been brilliant with how he, he uses, as you can see, energy management. And he's, uh, his company and companies like his have helped us drastically reduce our energy uses. And so here's how that kind of works. If you've ever been in one of our rooms or some meeting space and it's been way too hot, 
in the summer or way too cold in the winter, it's because we don't just leave lights and energy running indiscriminately. We schedule every single room, every single day, every single hour to reduce it. And so sometimes we don't always get the timing right. And so if you've ever wandered into a room and it's like way too hot or way too cold, just think it's your suffering for Jesus, right? Just a little bit. All right. So while we're just one place, your choices matter, our choices matter, they all matter. So uh, what's your part to play? Well, for, besides for some of you, maybe this is your calling like it is for Colby. Let me just give you just a real quick short list, leave you with this. Someone named John Stott created. John Stott it was basically the Billy Graham of England. And he gave, he wrote this in his final book before he died called The Radical Disciple. He talked about Christ-likeness and creation care. He says, here's some stuff we can do. You can support Christian environmental advocates and ministers. Use sustainable forms of energy, switch off unneeded appliances, purchase necessities from companies with ethically sound environmental policies. Just ask, start asking questions. Join local conservation societies, avoid overconsumption, recycle as much as possible, and we do too in the church here as well. Would you stand on your feet, uh, church, as we begin to dismiss? Pastor Nathan's going to come out and close us today. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.